Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Set it to the book of Judges. Some of you came today to find out what this is all about, the book of Judges. As we, some of you are like, yeah, we're here. I want you to think of some of the biggest quote-unquote choke moments in sports history. Those choke moments where maybe a team blew a huge lead, ends up losing, or maybe someone missed a critical free throw in the last seconds of a game. Uh, there's a wild card playoff back in 1993. I don't know if you remember. It was back when they were the Houston Oilers. The Buffalo Bills and the Houston Oilers, the 1993 wild card playoff. And the Oilers blew a 32-point lead to lose in overtime. It was the largest blown lead in NFL playoff history, 32 points. How do you blow 32 points? Well, ask the Broncos. They may know a little bit about that. In the mid-90s, when I was a big fan of the Houston Rockets, they had won their first championship against the New York Knicks, and then they had their second championship in 1995 against the Orlando Magic. But it was interesting, in game one of that NBA Finals, the Magic were up by three points. It was 110 to 107, and Nick Anderson went to the free throw line, and all he had to do was make one free throw, and the game would be over. One free throw. So not only did he miss one free throw, but he missed four free throws, And they were going into that fourth quarter leading by 20 points. And then basically after his fourth miss, the Rockets went on to not only win that first game, but also sweep the Orlando Magic and go on to win their second NBA championship because he choked at the free throw line. Only had to make one. He missed four. Or perhaps you're a golf fan. The 1996 Masters, when Greg Norman blew a considerable lead. He shot an opening 63 on the Masters course, which that's a course record, very difficult. Um, And he led the first three days in this golf tournament. But on the final day, he played his worst round of golf, and he lost a six-stroke lead in the final. And he eventually lost the Masters after starting out so great to Nick Faldo by five strokes. So these are examples of teams or individuals that started out great, started out winning, started out excelling, and then something happens, and they choke. They end up losing by a large margin. They, they, they blew a big lead. They, they lost because they couldn't hit free throws. Masters Golf Championship, they started out great, but then they choked royally and lost in the end. This could be said of the Israelites in the book of Judges. They started off well, and they ended in abject failure. It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. So today, we begin our new sermon series in the book of Judges. And I don't want to just dive right in because anytime we start a new book, especially in the Old Testament, we've got to get our bearings straight. We've got to get the lay of the land. We've got to get a little bit of foundation as far as where we're at because I just want to see a show of hands. Anybody ever sat through a sermon series on the book of Judges? I see one hand. I'm so excited. 
we're going to be with this together. So the book of Judges. So we're going to get some introductory issues. And so what I want to do as we jump into this book is just to ask some preliminary questions to kind of get the lay of the land. So here's the first question we're going to ask together. What is the historical setting of the book of Judges? What's the historical setting? Now, I don't have time to unpack all of the Old Testament to you today leading up to the book of Judges, but I want you to notice something. At the end of the book of Genesis, it says, Joseph died. He was the main character in the book of Genesis. And so how does Exodus begin? Well, Exodus begins with Joseph being dead and Moses being the key leader that emerges to lead the nation out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land. And at the end of Deuteronomy, it says Moses died. And so how does the book of Joshua start? The book of Joshua starts with Moses being dead, and now Joshua is the new leader who will actually lead the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land. So you got this pattern. Joseph died. Moses died. Joshua died. How does Judges begin? Read verse 1. After the death of Joshua. After the death of Joshua. So here's the big question. You got Joseph. You got Moses, you got Joshua. Who's going to be the leader that emerges in the book of Judges? That key leader, like Moses, like Joshua. Who's going to be the key leader? You see, the book of Joshua describes how they went in and occupied the promised land. Judges talks about how they settled and individually took those portions of land. And so the big question is, how will Israel complete what God had commanded back in Joshua? Will they completely occupy this pagan Canaanite promised land? And will they be obedient to the Lord? And how will they do it without a key leader? So the questions you've got to be asking as we go to the book of Judges is, how will the 12 tribes work together? Will they be unified? Will they be fighting with one another? Will they come to each other's rescue? Will there be infighting and factions? And you will quickly find the answers to these questions. And so the book of Joshua is a long, I mean the book of Judges is a long period of time. It's from the death of Joshua to the beginning of the monarchy under King Saul. So it's between the occupation of the promised land under Joshua, his death, and right up until Samuel anoints Saul as king of Israel. So it's before there's king in Israel. Right? Let's ask the second question. Who is the author of Judges? Well, we really don't know. The writer, the author is unknown. It's anonymous. But I can give you the historical traditional view. The historical view is that Samuel wrote Judges. Now, we can't be dogmatic on that because we really don't know. It's an anonymous author. So I'm going to be just saying the writer as we go through. The writer the narrator of Judges. Now, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's inspired Scripture. We just don't know who exactly it was. All right, let's ask another question. Why is the book called Judges? When you think of Judges, what do you think of? Guys in black robes, striking the gavel and making judgments behind a bench. The book of Judges. That's not what the word means. The word Judges in Hebrew is Safat. And it means a military leader. So go to chapter 9 for just a moment. I mean, chapter 2. 
not chapter 9, chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, verse 16. This is the first time the word judges shows up in the book of Judges, and it kind of gives us a definition here. So chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. That Hebrew word sapat, judge, means deliverer or military leader. I want you to think not of a guy in a black robe, but a military leader, a general, a, a, a deliverer. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus read during his day, that Paul read during his day. It translates that Old Testament Hebrew word into the word judges. And so that's kind of why we've got the word judges today. But here's the point. These men and one woman were temporary, keyword, temporary spirit-empowered leaders that God raised up to help defeat the enemy. So they're not kings. They're precursors to the kings. They're not kings, but they're, think of a military leader that God raised up temporarily to deal with a problem. And so Judges is a book with 12 different judges. Interesting people we'll find out on the way. You've got a cowardly farmer hiding in the luggage when the angel of the Lord comes and calls him to lead an army. In a few weeks, we'll see the left-handed assassin. You've got an illegitimate son who becomes a bandit. And then, of course, at the end, you've got the sex-addicted, long-haired bodybuilder, Samson. A bunch of interesting people we will study over the next few months together. Okay, next question. Why study Judges? Why do we even study this book? Because it's a good idea. Well, that's, that's true. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says these things about the nation of Israel. He's teaching them about the golden calf and how Israel was idolatrous. And he makes an interesting statement in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He says this, and this could be applied to all of the Old Testament. He says, now these things happened to them, the Old Testament Israelites, as an example, that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The book of Judges was written down for our instruction. Now, it happened to them, but it's written down for us. And we don't often spend as much time in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Now, you may be very familiar with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're familiar with the writings of Paul. But a lot of times the Old Testament is very foreign to us, and it's hard to understand. And so... As we move through Judges, I need to give a little bit of warning to parents, okay? And I'll, I'll, give, I'll give this warning as we get closer. There are some parts of Judges that are PG-13. There are some parts of Judges that are borderline R-rated. And we'll have to make some accommodations on those Sundays when we get there as far as parents allowing your children into the worship service because the Bible deals with this material. And so we need to understand that this is what happened in real history. It's not a fairy tale. It's not make-believe. The author of Judges is writing under the inspiration of, this, of the Holy Spirit, and he's telling us what happened. And this is some of the frustrating part of the book of Judges. He's not going to necessarily give an explanation of what happened. He's not going to give a commentary. He's not going to give a theological point. He's just going to report to us what happened. And we've got to live with the tension of what is reported. And so there may be times when you turn to your spouse and whisper under your breath, or you, uh, you know, 
nudge your brother and sister and say, did it really say that? Is that really in the Bible? Does the Bible really, did that really happen? And I will say, yes, it did. And so the book of Judges will challenge us in many areas. And so my goal as your pastor is to help us navigate through these tricky waters because judges will be tricky at times. But we must, if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, preach the whole counsel of God's word. We can't pick and choose which parts we want to stick with. We've got to preach the whole counsel, the difficult parts. And so Paul says in Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So oftentimes churches don't really deal with the Old Testament. Maybe they avoid the book of Judges. We're going to dive right into it. We're going to deal with it. We're going to, we're going to navigate through it. By the, by the Lord's help, we're going to work together through this difficult book of Judges. And let's just pray that God helps us together to understand that. So those are some introductory issues. I know we're kind of coming in here. I'm assuming you have a lot of Old Testament background. But I want us just to kind of dive right into the text in chapter 1. And so chapter 1 is really broken up into three parts. And so you're going to have to bear with me because there's a lot of funny names in a lot of funny places, hard to pronounce here. So I will do my best to pronounce these. And if you laugh at how I pronounce, I will just say, you come up here and try to pronounce those names with me. So here's part one, the introduction of the book. Verses one and two give us the introduction of the book. And so let's just read verses one and two. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Here's the main point of this introductory section, these first two verses. Here's the main point. Our power comes directly from the sovereign God, not our favorite fallible human leaders. Joshua's dead. There is no favorite leader. Moses is dead. Joseph is dead. All these men that led them are dead. And so they are inquiring of the Lord, and they must realize that the power comes directly from the sovereign God. Not your favorite leader. Don't put your faith in a man. Don't put your faith in in some person to be your savior. It comes directly from the sovereign God. Now, there's a huge problem in Judges, and it happens in Joshua. Moses made preparations to raise up Joshua as a leader. Joshua fails to do that, and it pays off badly for the Israelites. So Moses prepared Joshua to be the leader. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31, 1 through 3. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Moses says, I'm not going into the promised land. I've been forbidden to do that. 
but Joshua will lead you. And so Moses makes preparations to lead, to mentor, to raise up Joshua, to, to basically invest in him so that he can lead. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it tells us that Joshua was full of wisdom, was full of the Holy Spirit, and that Moses had commissioned him in front of the people, basically ordained him to be the leader. And so at Moses' death, Joshua was prepared. Joshua's been trained. Joshua's been raised up. He leads the people into the promised land. The book of Joshua, they, they occupy the promised land. But here's the big failure. Joshua does not follow the example that Moses gave him in raising up somebody to replace him. Joshua does not raise up a successor. And so when you get to the beginning of Judges, you automatically start thinking, well, who's next? Who did Joshua raise? Okay, you got Joseph died. Moses, the main guy in Exodus. Moses dies, the main guy in Joshua. Joshua dies. Who's the main guy in Judges? Well, we really don't have anybody to emerge as the main guy. And it's going to cause problems for the 12 tribes. But I want you to notice what they do. They start off so good. What's the first thing Israel does? Notice what it says there. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. They prayed. They prayed. They didn't strategize and get a meeting together. They didn't go try to figure out what their strength was. They knew they were powerless. They knew they were without a leader. And so they got on their knees and they prayed. It's the first thing they did. Now, why are we so tempted to charge out and fix things in our own power when a crisis hits instead of getting on our knees and praying? The last thing we do is pray. I can fix it. Let's get a strategy. Let's get a meeting. Let's try to plan. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but maybe the last thing we do is we get on our knees and pray pray because we want to be in control. We want to be in charge. We don't really trust in the sovereignty of God. We want to manage the situation. So Israel starts out great. The very first thing they're doing in the book of Judges is they're praying. We're without a leader. Let's pray. And what's the question? Who's going to lead us? (laughs) Our leader's dead. Joshua's dead. Who's going to fight for us? And the Lord answers their prayer and says, Judah. Judah will go up. I will be with Judah. Now, why Judah? If you know from your Israelite history, Judah is the fourth-born son of Jacob. The fourth-born. But Judah emerged in the book of Genesis as the leader of the 12 tribes. In Genesis chapter 48, verses 6 through 12, you go back and you read that, and you find out that Judah is called the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Kings will come out of Judah's lineage. David comes from the line of Judah. Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Judah is the prototype. Judah is the leader, the the main tribe, the leader of the Israelites, Judah. And so God is going to give Judah leadership. And so the nation of Israel starts out great, and they're praying, and and Judah is the leader. Okay, so that's the introduction to the book. Now, in verses 3 through 20, it's part 2. And this is basically a narrative historical account of the successes and failures of the tribe of Judah and Simeon who joins them. So let's read this, and again, we're going to have to settle in on these these interesting names. So here we go, verse 3. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek, 
They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Again, I told you, weird stuff. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him into Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there they went down against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Akshah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othnael, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up into the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory, and the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. What's this all about? Let me give you the central theme here of this section, the second section of the first chapter. Judges starts out on a positive note with the people praying and unified to accomplish God's mission. It's positive. They're inquiring of the Lord. They're praying. Judah has success. Judah's the leader. They're, they're working together. Judah and Simeon are coming together. They're defeating the, 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 uh, the enemy. And so there's unity. But that will soon deteriorate, and there won't be unity. Now, we've got to deal with one of the difficult things in the book of Judges. And that is the question, why did God command the Israelites to drive out the foreign nations. In other words, why did God command genocide? It sounds very inhumane, it sounds foreign to our ears, and it sounds pretty cruel. Why did God say, go in and drive out the inhabitants, the Canaanites? It's a very difficult thing, and I don't have all the time in the world this morning to answer that, but let me just say this. Were the Canaanites innocent? Were they innocent? No. They were wicked, and they did wicked things to the Israelites, and God is executing his justice for the way they had treated the Israelites for many years. But it's very interesting what Moses says to the Israelites back in Deuteronomy before they go into the land. And I think this sets the stage for understanding this. In Deuteronomy 9, 4-6, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, It's because of my righteousness that the Lord brought me in to possess this land. 
Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. That he may now confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. What is God saying to Israel? You really don't deserve to go into the promised land. And when you go in there and dispossess these evil nations, it's not because you're all that, Israel. It's not because you're righteous. It's not because you deserve it. I'm doing this because I'm sovereign and I've made a covenant with you and they're wicked. And by the way, you're just as wicked, but you're my special people. And so don't get all inflated and don't get this big ego thinking you deserve it because I'm calling you to go in there and drive them out, but it's not because you're all that. It's because I'm keeping my promise as a sovereign God. Now, we may not like this whole idea of driving out these nations, but let me give you a quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He's written a great book on the book of Judges, and he says this. This will be very convicting. He says, quote, The Bible does not claim the conquest will be palatable, but it does insist it was just. Anyway, contemporary Western church members who vicariously and avidly gorge themselves on violence via television and movies have forfeited any right to throw the first stone at the biblical conquest. What's he saying? Oh, it's so violent. I can't believe God would command that. He's like, those of you that sit there and watch movies that are are gory, action movies that have all this violence, you really have no room to to complain because you're sitting there watching it and don't have any problem with watching it. I'll just let that set out there this morning. But the end of this section, verse 20, Caleb gets to conquest or conquer Hebron. Now, remember Caleb. You go back to Numbers chapter 14. Caleb was one of the ones, along with Joshua, who gave a good report. When the 12 spies went in to spy, Joshua and Caleb came back. They were the only two that gave the good report. And so God rewarded Caleb with Hebron. Moses had promised to Caleb, you're going to have Hebron because you have been a faithful man. And so you go to um, Numbers 14.24 says this, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Caleb was rewarded with Hebron because he had walked with the Lord all these years. And how old's Caleb? Well, you go back to Joshua chapter, 20, or Joshua chapter 14, Caleb is 85 years old. And it's a great speech by Caleb. It's 85. He's like, I've walked with the Lord 85 years. I'm ready to take that mountain. So this 85-year-old man's ready to jump up and take the mountain. And finally he gets the mountain. And God rewards Caleb with Hebron as an 85-year-old man. And it, what this shows me, the joy of growing old in the Lord through faithful obedience. Good things come to those who wait, even if you have to wait to be 85 to get God's gifts. So even after the death of Joshua, God is granting Israel military success. Things are starting out great. They're praying. Judah's leading. They're unified. But then things go south very quickly. So here's the last section of Judges. And part three is this, the failure of the remaining tribes. So what we're going to see is, say, Judah and Simeon emerge together as the leaders, and they're doing well. The rest of this chapter shows how every single of the other tribes are failing. They're not doing what God called them to do, starting with Benjamin.
which is very important. So let's keep reading. Verse 21. But, notice the but, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with it. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is the name to this day. Manasseh, again, these are the tribes. So Manasseh, Benjamin, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, the inhabitants of Ebiam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put down the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Ephraim, another tribe, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but, beca- but became subject to forced labor. Asher, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Keep on going down there. Verse 33, Naphtali, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants. You go down to verse 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan, that's another tribe, back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in the Mount Herez, in Aijalon, and in the Shiblim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor, and the border of the Amorites read from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Okay, what's all this stuff going on here? What you're showing here that but that starts verse 21, but the tone is shifting. The other tribes are failing, especially Benjamin. Now, Benjamin fails to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. This is very important. Now, this is before Jerusalem becomes the capital city, the, the, the city of God, the city of David. Benjamin fails. Now, Benjamin will become a source of a thorn in the flesh, a thorn in the side, For the rest of the nations, the rest of the tribes, Benjamin emerges as kind of the problem child, the problem, the problem tribe. And and, and interestingly, who comes from the tribe of Benjamin? Who's Israel's first king? Saul. And he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I want you to notice a phrase that was repeated seven times. Did you see it? So-and-so did not drive out the inhabitants. So-and-so. This tribe did not drive out, did not drive out, did not. Now, is this to be, like, bore us with repetition? Okay, they didn't drive him out, they didn't drive him out. No, it's not to bore us with repetition, it's to show a theological point. The theological point is they failed. They failed in their mission. They did not do what God called them to do. And that's going to come back and haunt them. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 
then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash them in pieces, their pillars, and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. If you don't destroy these nations and burn down their idols and you begin to intermarry with them, they are going to influence you, Israel. You are going to be just like the pagan nations around you. You failed to completely drive out these nations. It was not complete and total obedience to the will of God. It was partial. It was partial obedience. And maybe Israel thought, hey, partial obedience is good. We, we can pragmatically deal with this part way. And God says, no, you don't go part way. You need to obey me totally and completely. And this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. We'll see this next week. Because they failed to cut down these idols, these idols are going to overtake their hearts. Daniel Block, the great Old Testament scholar, says this. He says, quote, This chapter is pervaded by unfulfilled commitment, incomplete obedience, and compromising tolerance. This first chapter sets the stage for the major themes in the book of Judges. So since this is an overview sermon, I want to conclude with three overarching themes that we will see in the book of Judges that frame the entire book for us. These, this is a big picture. What are these three things? Here's the first. There is always a temptation to become like the worldly culture around us. There's always a temptation to become like the worldly culture around us. That's ultimately what the book of Judges is. If I could say the book of Judges, here's, here's one sentence I would give you the book of Judges. It's the paganization of God's people. They're getting paganized. Or to, or to say it more specifically, it's the canonization of God's people. They're becoming like the Canaanites. Baal, B-A-A-L, or some people call him Baal. Baal, he was the false god of the Canaanites. All these poles, all these statues, all around the land, these tall poles were to Baal. And, and they'd failed to smash them down. So everywhere they went, they see these big poles, these big monuments to Baal. And so listen to this quote from Dale Ralph Davis again. He says this, quote, Tolerate Baal's people, and sooner or later you will bow at Baal's altar. Let me say it this way. Tolerate the culture around you, and sooner or later you will bow to the idols of that culture. God is absolutely holy, and he calls us as his people to be distinct from the world around us. Now, during our time of confession, Dwayne, one of our elders, read to us Romans 12, 1 through 2. There's always a temptation to be squeezed into the mold of the pagan nations around us. That was Israel's problem. They were being squeezed into the mold of the pagan nations around them. And God tells us not to do that. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world. Israel was conformed to the pagan world around them and they paid dearly for it. And we will see this time 
and time again. There's always a temptation to want to be like the ungodly culture around us. And because of that, here's the second theme in Judges. Because of that, God disciplines those he loves to lead them to repent of this compromise. We're going to see a pattern. It's actually a downward spiral. Israel's going to keep spiraling downward and downward into idolatry. And as they get deeper and deeper into idolatry of the world around them, God's going to discipline them. God's going to send a nation in to invade them, and they're going to be disciplined. And 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? God's got to clean up his house first with Israel. And so the way he does that is he sends these nations in to invade them as an act of discipline. So God may discipline you because he loves you as a way for you to get out of that idolatry that has taken over your heart because you are looking so much like the world around you. And here's the third and probably the most important thing in the book of Judges. Without a king, people will do what is right in their own eyes. Without a king, remember there's no leader yet. This is before the kings. And I want, you, I want to show you the end of the book, okay? So we're going to start today by going to the end. It always tells you what the book's about. So go to chapter 17 for a moment. Go to chapter 17, verse 6. And I want to read to you something, and then we're going to go to the very last verse of Judges, because the very last verse tells us what this entire book's about. It's the same thing repeated. Okay, here we go. Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now go to the very last verse of Judges. The very last verse. I told you, we're going to end at the beginning, or we're going to begin at the end. Verse 25. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, read that carefully. Notice what it does not say. It doesn't say everybody did wrong. It doesn't say everybody disobeyed. What does it say? Everybody did right in their own eyes. Now, that's different. In other words... The ultimate authority was themselves for their decisions. They made up the rules as they went along. And if you would ask those Israelites, are you doing something wrong? Oh, they've never admit they're doing something wrong. We're doing right. We're doing doing what seems right in our own eyes. They would never admit they were wrong because after all, I can do whatever I want to. Nobody has the right to tell me I'm wrong. You know what the primary idolatry of our age is? It's not a bail pole. Here's the the idolatry of our age. I will say it very clearly. Unbridled self-expression where you make your own rules. Nobody tells me what to do. I make my own rules, and I can express myself however I want, and you must accept it because I'm doing what's right in my own eyes. How dare you tell me I am wrong? That's the culture we're living in. 
We're living in this culture of Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a culture where people are calling things that are good evil and calling things that are evil good. They're doing what's right in their own eyes, and here's why. There's no king in Israel. The whole book of Judges is leading them to want a king, a king after God's own heart. Robert Godfrey Godfrey says this, The book of Judges is a mirror held up to the church that forces us to ask ourselves, Is Jesus our king? And do we live by faith in his word? If the answer is yes, the church from generation to generation will know the Lord. They need a king. And that king will be a king after God's own heart. It will eventually be King David. But we know that David was a mere man. So ultimately, Judges is pointing to us to have a need for a king. The greater son of David. King Jesus, the ultimate king of kings. So the main hero of the book of Judges is our sovereign God, not these men, not these judges. Now, I'm calling this sermon series The Gospel According to Judges. And you may say, well, that's a weird title. Why The Gospel According to Judges? Isn't like the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, isn't the gospel mean good news? Why is this the good news of Judges? I thought Judges was kind of an evil, a book of the evil Israelites. Yes, it is. The book of Judges shows Israel at one of their lowest points in history. It's got a lot of bad, bad news. It's about the wayward people, the idolatrous people, the, the people that failed to be distinct from the world around them, the people that adopted the culture. They compromised time and time again. They spiraled into idolatry time and time again. They were disobedient time and time again. But when a spirit-empowered leader came, They followed the Lord for a brief moment. So here's the question we've got to ask as Christians who want to live distinct from the world around us. Every time we face Israel and what they're doing in the book of Judges, we've got to ask ourselves, are we going to be like Israel? Are we going to compromise? Are we going to engage in idolatry? Are we going to rely upon the Holy Spirit? Are we going to trust in God's sovereignty? Are we going to be looking for that king greater than any judge, greater than King David, Jesus himself? You see, these judges that came, that God raised up, they were fallible humans. And they did save the people for a time. But that temporary salvation only amplified Israel's need for a permanent, stable king to shepherd them. And we're no different than Israel. We're wayward. We're idolatrous. And we deserve nothing but God's wrath. And God did not send to us judges to temporarily save us. He sent to us once and for all the King of Kings to save us in His sovereign grace. Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again. So we need more than just a temporary human leader like a judge to save us like Israel did. We need Jesus to save us from our sins and give us eternal life. And so like like Israel, we need a king to rule over us and to shepherd us. And if not, if Jesus is not our king and our shepherd, we will be just like Israel. We'll do what's right in our own eyes. Without Jesus as our king, we will do what is right in our own eyes. So we desperately need 
Jesus to rescue us from our idols and to rule our hearts with his power. So we need to ask King Jesus to transform our minds so that we won't compromise like the culture around us. We need to ask King Jesus to transform our hearts so that we don't commit idolatry and replace Jesus with cheap substitutes. And we need to ask Jesus to transform our wills so that we will bow before his lordship and follow him as our king. So as we study the book of Judges, don't look at the judges. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the ultimate king of kings and hero of this book. So let me ask you the question. Are you ready to go through Judges together? All right. Then let's ask the Lord to be with us and to guide us and to always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, it's very easy for us to do what's right in our own eyes. We think we know everything. We think we're in control of everything. And we resent anybody telling us what to do. In our heart of hearts, we put up idols of things we want to worship besides you. And Lord, just like Israel, that failed miserably for them. And so would we keep our eyes upon you, Jesus, as our ultimate king? Would you transform our hearts? Would you transform our minds? And would you transform our will so that we won't compromise like the culture around us, that we won't do what's right in our own eyes, but that we will bow our knee to you as our only Savior and see our need for forgiveness, our need for eternal life, and our only need and our only hope is in you, Jesus as our permanent King of Kings, the one whom God has sent as the Good Shepherd to lead us and to guide us. We desperately need your grace in our lives, and so Holy Spirit, would you empower us this week to walk in truth, to walk away from idols, and Holy Spirit, would you help us to keep our eyes always fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We love you, Lord. We surrender ourselves before you. We thank you for your grace in our lives. Help us over these next few months together as we study the book of Judges that we might learn from this book how to be and how to glorify you. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.